In this week's Big Tech Show, we talk to the Dublin startup that wants to help big companies stop making stupid, embarrassing mistakes with their AI, such as telling people to eat rocks as part of a healthy diet. Basic definition of hallucination is say, stating something very confidently, but in fact, it's factually incorrect. This AI technology is very good at stating something very confident, mimicking human-level confidence, but then they could be factually incorrect. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. I listen to podcasts all the time and it came up as I recommended and it's his picture and I did not know him from Adam. He did not look like that on the day at all. I remember the first episode I still didn't cotton on to what I was listening to and I went, oh my God, that's the guy. That's the fella. I'm Not Here to Hurt You, episode six, The Bank Teller, coming soon to all the usual spots and to independent.ie. Today on the Indo-Daily, a body found in Tralee, the FBI link and the conspiracy theories. The tragic story of Thomas Stofield. An inquest in Tralee has finally answered a three-year-long question. Who was the man found dead on Mish Mountain in Kerry in 2020? I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Sinead Kelleher, reporter with the Kerry Man and the Irish Independent, and by Jerry O'Sullivan, host of Kerry Today on Radio Kerry, to ask what drove a man from his Oregon home to a direct provision centre in Tralee, and what was the FBI connection? Jerry O'Sullivan, Thomas Stofield made headlines and wound up on the FBI's radar back in 2017. That seems like a good place to start this story. Yeah, it is. It's a really unusual story. And uh, this came about, of course, and he came to the attention of the authorities because they had originally sought um, help from the public in locating his daughter, uh, Caitlin Stofill, who was missing and possibly endangered. Uh, now, they believed that she was with her father, Thomas Clarence Stofill. At the time, the officers and agents simply wanted to locate her to ensure that she was safe. And that came about when his truck was found in late February, parked, you know, in a rural area about a mile and a half down uh, a highway near on the Warm Springs Reservation. It was noted at the time that him or his daughter had had no known connection with the area other than the fact that the vehicle was found on the reservation. They were living in Portland most recently and Caitlin was reported as being homeschooled. So that's why he came on the radar and at the time, the FBI gave the instruction and they give a lot of, unlike what happens over here in Ireland, um, uh, you know, guardy keep information unless it's absolutely necessary uh, from the public. In America, they divulge a lot more in an effort to try and find and resolve things straight away. Now, 
The FBI and Warm Springs Police Department are asking for the public's help in locating a 11-year-old girl, Caitlin Stofill, who is missing and possibly endangered. Law enforcement officers believe Caitlin is with her custodial father, Thomas Clarence Stofill, age 44. At this time, officers and agents simply want to locate Caitlin to ensure that she is safe. They said at the time that Thomas Stofill may be distraught is known to possess various weapons and reportedly has survival skills. And they advised that, you know, he shouldn't be approached. But if anyone did see them or anyone matching their description, then please to contact um, the, the FBI and, and the police to try and get um, their safe return. So that's how he came on the radar originally. And it's probably worth saying, Jerry, it's not that this was a kidnap case as such. He was entitled to spend time with his daughter. It was just they had disappeared effectively and there was concerns. Um, He was a man of the mountains and the woods, I think is how he was described. So there was concerns for the welfare of the child, given that they had disappeared. Yeah, yeah, there was. And I suppose concerns, some of that had come from members of his family as well, who had contributed to news reports in the United States. You know, concerns from her half-sister as well about, I suppose, his behaviour, which was seen as erratic. And that stems from some of his beliefs which were on the extreme side, some of his behaviors in terms of his, you know, survivalist techniques and what he had been saying through his religious beliefs and other beliefs against the government that something may be gone awry here or gone wrong here. And that brings you about then, Kevin, to the whole situation whereby he had these beliefs that number one, you know, different organizations were following him and tracking him. So he had to kind of, I suppose, in the modern parlance, get off the grid. And number two, that there was some sort of a catastrophic event on the way and that he was taking his daughter into the wilds to protect her from that event and himself, that he may survive it. And that's what led him to go into, effectively go into the wilderness. And thankfully, that situation was resolved a number of days later. The Warm Springs Police Department located 11-year-old Caitlin Stofill and her father, Thomas Stofill, a few minutes after 10 this morning, March 8, 2017. An FBI agent and a Warm Springs detective were driving separately down Highway 26, approximately 25 miles west of the city of Warm Springs, when they saw the Stofills hitchhiking. And they had been hitchhiking because they had been living in the trees effectively for quite some time. Um, His daughter wasn't dressed for the weather. It wasn't ideal. They were wet, cold and hungry and out of supplies, but otherwise appeared physically uninjured. That's why they decided to go hitchhiking. So that's kind of just another example, I suppose, of the erratic behavior. And that's why there was concern as opposed to concern that anything he would have done anything bad to her. It was about his behavior and what that was leading him to do and to bring her with him on that erratic journey. There was no charges brought against him at the time, um, but it did... I suppose, open up uh, a window into a, a world, I guess, that most of us wouldn't really be familiar with. Some of the things he talked about, and in fairness, the Irish Examiner did quite a bit on this last year. He had studied the activities of the Freemasons and he thought that he had the inside track on their corrupt secrets and that they were chasing him. This sort of thing was what was motivating, I guess, his strange movements. 
Yeah, and that was one of his, his, it seems to have been what drove him in the large extent that he had spent quite some time, he says, studying the Freemasons and their their corrupt practices. And because of that, that he was a target. And one of the issues he talked about was that he didn't believe in the devil and that they um, knew he was onto them and therefore he was a target for them. And that's why at various different stages, including in this incident with his daughter, that he very quickly and very suddenly decided to go into the wilderness and go off the grid. Now, he he was a, um, a man of, of skilled hands. He was a skilled iron worker, but he was a survivalist. And, and the whole survivalist, I suppose, culture in America is one that's developed over the last number of years to an extent. I mean, America was created and found and discovered by survivalist people who could you know, conquer the continent and go out into the wilderness and find a way to bring civilization there, shall we say. But there are still huge tracts of the country, um, not unlike here in Ireland, but on a much smaller scale that are, it's, it's when you get out there, it's pretty raw wilderness and you have to know how to stay warm. You have to know how to stay dry. You have to know how to, to protect yourself in those situations. If you put yourself into those situations, then it seems like his beliefs put him on that road. And like we've seen it, particularly, Kevin, since the pandemic. And that may what brings us forward to, I suppose, what happened most recently, what ultimately led, led to Thomas Dofield's death, is that the the major events push people to not trust the government, not trust authority, and feel they have to rely on themselves. And that's a big part of this kind of subset of culture in America, that you need to protect yourself, you need to be able to camp, you need to be able to... Um, provide supplies, you need to be able to be skilled in the outdoors world, which to an extent Thomas Stofield was, and he was very much into the, the what's called the prepper culture, the people who are preparing to rough it in the wilderness in order to, uh, to have the best chance of surviving an oncoming disaster or cat- catastrophic event, which he believed was on the way. A doomsday, effectively, I think is what we're kind of talking about. And one of the things, Jerry, which is worth mentioning is that part of that ideology is being able to protect yourself and he was pretty fanatical about guns as well. Yeah, and that's that's a large part of the of the situation in the United States. It is so free and easy to get guns that one of the key parts of it and you tie it into the the rights that people have under the constitution of the United States that you are entitled to bear arms and to protect yourself even if that is protection from the government. And he was a a full believer in that at the time of um the FBI incident in 2017. There was other incidents as well where he had a rifle and an AK-47. At the time they were found, I think they were unloaded, but he knew how to use them. And that was a part, same as having a having a sleeping bag and a knife uh, and, and being prepared to go into the wilderness. Having a gun was another part of it. And he was a full believer in that and well acquainted with, with firearms and weaponry. And that kind of complicated matters then when it came to, I suppose, the advice for the public that time from the FBI, do not approach him, distraught and may have weapons. And that's kind of the unpredictable nature of things in the United States when you're talking about law and order incidents. More often than not, unlike in a number of other countries, guns will be involved. And particularly, I suppose, with regards to mental health issues that Thomas Stofield clearly had because, you know, from his beliefs and from his erratic behaviour. And you mentioned there about that he wasn't arrested at that time. And a number of days afterwards, he's reported as being back at work. That's one of the questions for me, I suppose, about how the authorities dealt with him in America and how he ended up on the road that he ended up on, which led to him being in Tralee in a a direct provision centre, is that because of his mental condition, a decision was made not to pursue charges. 
Here was a guy who had issues, had extreme beliefs, and was clearly and mentally unwell. And that was the reason cited by the authorities not to pursue charges. But at the same time, it's unclear as to what sort of help was offered for him, which may have provided assistance or may have led to a different outcome for him. And and particularly with regards to the element of weaponry, his knowledge of them and his use of them as well, it all adds to questions as to why maybe help wasn't intervened if, if it was decided that there were issues with his mental health that meant he didn't belong in the justice system. So Jerry, this is the bit where we get to all news is local and how Thomas Stofield ends up travelling to Ireland in, we think, 2019 and landing in Tralee. Yeah, it, it's not exactly certain as to when he arrived, uh, but it is thought that he arrived in um, 2019. He worked in a restaurant as a kitchen porter. He was spotted walking the streets. He was kind of spotted because he had an army jacket. And of course, he he he's this distinctive goatee beard that he's seen tugging for emphasis and comfort in, in some of the videos that we see of him online. But you know, he was seen as, in some ways, he was a different man once here in Ireland. Now, we know of his behaviour, thanks to Ali, a former asylum seeker, who is is now involved in his own business. And, and he talks, I suppose, about, you know, observing him, observing his movements and talking to him about, I suppose, the sort of things he said to him in terms of his belief. Ali said he told him a little bit about his story, like being homeless. And, and before Ireland, he was in Alaska. He showed him pictures of him there. He'd never been in Ireland before. And another asylum seeker, Imad, never found out exactly why he arrived here. I asked him many times, but he didn't like that. And and he was telling him, you know, you're an American citizen. I'm Algerian. I'm stuck. I'm, I'm an asylum seeker. You're an American citizen. You can go anywhere. So why did you come here, I suppose? But he never really gave a, a clear answer. And that is an interesting question, Jerry. We don't associate people living in direct provision centres with American citizens? No, certainly not. And you, it's the last kind of person you would think would come here. If they're coming here for a reason, you'd say they'd find their own accommodation. Maybe it was an issue, issue with to do with his financial situation. Maybe it was an issue to do with his beliefs that he believed he, believed he was being persecuted in the United States and applied for asylum upon living in, upon arriving in Ireland. And then you, you have the situation, I suppose, that maybe it was a practical decision, that maybe he didn't have the money or the financial wherewithal to um, support himself in the new country, so applied for asylum on arriving, and then he was provided with accommodation. But look, you look at the, the nationalities and the ethnicities of people who are in direct provision in this country, a lot of, of Africans, a lot of North Africans, a lot of people from, from conflict zones, a lot of uh, former Soviet republics, but very few uh, American citizens would enter the um, direct provision system. It just adds to another level of strangeness as to um, how he arrived here and how he ended up in, in Tralee, of all places, in Atlas House. Uh, direct provision centre has been one there for many years. Tell me a little bit about Atlas House. What type of accommodation would he have been provided with there? Yeah, it's decent enough accommodation. It's a set of apartments off a side street in Tralee, you know, not far from Tralee Town Centre. And it's got these apartments and it's been in operation for, for many years. It's home to almost 90 male, single male asylum seekers. As I said, people from sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the Middle East. Um, 
he would have lived there. He would have got basic accommodation. He would have got the basic payment that um, people in direct provision, international protection applicants, as they're called now, uh, would have gotten. He wasn't there long before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is another element, I suppose, to his story that you would wonder if that would have coincided with some of his beliefs that would have led him to take the action that he took to go into the wilderness outside Tralee. And then, Jerry, start the pandemic arrives and obviously the world changes again. And if perhaps you have a mindset of believing that there is a, a big conspiracy behind all of this, that seems to be something that upsets him greatly and he disappears. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I mean, in October 2020, he went missing. Um, uh, he went missing at the, at, the, at the beginning of the pandemic first, but he came back. He wasn't at Atlas House long, and at the start of the pandemic, he went missing from the centre. He went to the mountain around about 10 days, according to some of the, uh, his fellow fellow colleagues in, in the fellow asylum seekers in the centre. Um, no food, no water, nothing. When he came back, it was during the first lockdown. And um, if you leave um, a direct provision centre for just 24 hours, you have to go into quarantine for two weeks. After that, he came back into the hostel. And then in October 2020, he went missing again. And Gardaí contacted the US authorities at this point to see if he'd returned home. But that was when the following month, he was found dead. A very sad ending. And, and maybe, and we don't know, fueled by either the media coverage or the reality of it. We've seen, Kevin, and you know from the work you've done, the flowering and the acceleration and the exponential increase in conspiracy theories around the COVID-19 pandemic and around decisions that governments across the world had to make on things like wearing masks, the introduction of vaccines and lockdowns, that this was proof for the preppers. And if you were of a prepper extreme mindset, either tied to religion or not, then this is your proof that the end is coming, the end is nigh. And I suppose we can only speculate that's what drove Thomas to go off into the wilderness because he felt that after his years of belief that a, a you know a catastrophe was coming, that it had finally arrived and we were in extreme times. And that led him to leaving and going into the mountains, into the Kerry Mountains. And in recent days, Jerry, we had the inquest find that it was a, a sad death by suicide. How do people in Kerry feel about this story, that this man with a very unusual background, as you say, was recognised in Tralee during his time there by, by local people? How do people feel about the, the whole tragedy? I guess uh, there's a sense of sadness about it, really, a sense of surprise that, that it would be that someone would do this, first of all, a sense of surprise that it would be an American citizen who was in a direct provision centre in Tralee and wondering as to how he got there. Uh, but also a, a, a sense of sadness because it was a very sad end for him, um, notwithstanding, I suppose, the, the situation that, that it delivered him on. And I guess that, that, that feeling there as well that perhaps maybe if this man had received help at somewhere along the way, no, we, we don't know, maybe he was offered help and didn't um, accept it. Like, as we said, and we've talked about his, his beliefs were extreme. He didn't trust authority and didn't trust governments, and didn't trust the US government. So that may have driven him on the road that he was on. But um, just, you know, very sad. And, and for the farmer who was out walking, who found him, and for the members of the Kerry Mountain Rescue um, who were out there um, and, and found him, just an overwhelming sense of that it was a terrible pity that this had happened to him and that this man was driven to do what he did in such a remote spot in Tonavan. Sinead Kelleher, you were in court in the last few days when we got the official version 
of Thomas Stofield's death. Describe um, how these inquests work in County Kerry. It's not like a court hearing as such, but it's not that far away from it. So an inquest is to find out the last movements of the person who passed away and he's called the cause of death of that said person. So the first deposition at the inquest was from a roommate of Thomas's who had said he had last seen him on September 25th, 2020. His body was found by a farmer on November 14, 2020. That was about seven weeks after he was last seen. He was officially reported missing to Gardaí. The inquest was told in about October 6th. The main parts of the inquest was where his body was found. And that was by a farmer, Joe Fitzgerald, who was out checking sheep in this very, very mountainous, remote area outside Tralee. He saw the body across a ravine but couldn't access it and he rang emergency services. And so there was a bit of a gap there, Sinead, between being last seen on September 25th and being reported missing on October 6th. Was there any explanation given for that or were you just to take from that that this was a man living in direct provision that perhaps didn't have a lot of social contacts or people that would be watching out for him? Absolutely. I mean, there was no explanation at all given, only that the, the, his roommate had seen him on September 25th and then he was officially reported to Gardaí as missing some about a week later, which was October 6th. And like, obviously, there was no, no mention of what happened in between or where he went or what actually happened. But he's, the next sighting of him was when he was actually already passed away. And that was on the mountain in Tonavan. Can you describe that mountainous area where he was found? Now, the inquest had quite some detail on this because it was an extremely remote area. So Joe Fitzgerald, the farmer, had been gone off looking for sheep. So he walked quite a distance and he saw the body across a ravine. And when he contacted emergency services, Gardaí came to the scene. Now, they parked quite a distance and had to walk right up the mountain to where the body was. So both Gardaí in their deposition told the inquest that it was extremely remote. The body was inaccessible from where they were standing. So they sought uh, assistance from Kerry Mountain Rescue. So it was Kerry Mountain Rescue actually had to come to the scene to retrieve the body. It was like both Gardaí could not get across the ravine to get, so, get to him. And I presume at that stage, this is a body found randomly, for want of a better word. I presume the state has a, there's a procedure that kicks in here involving Gardaí, different agencies in terms of trying to find out who this person was and was it you know, a tragic hillwalker? Was it a murder? Was it something more sinister? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, at this point, all nobody knew who this man was. There was just a body discovered and he had to be removed from the mountain. So the next step was uh, the following day, Dr. Margaret Bolster, the assistant state pathologist, carried out a postmortem on this body. Now, they obviously searched the body at the time and two ID cards were found on the body of Mr. Sofield. And these actually had to identify, give, give Gardaí at least a name, but obviously there was no visible identity of him at this point. So they checked the ID cards and these linked to a passport issued to Thomas Soapfield, an American passport. He was an American citizen. So they knew that this following, from the identity cards found in his pocket, there was also a social welfare receipt in his pocket and a significant sum of money. Yeah. Was anything said about the money that was found? No, just um, I, I, Bill Corner had Lucy actually praised the honesty of all those that had been to the scene because it was quite a significant sum of money. It was a cash sum of money of 1,220 euros. So it was quite a significant amount. But no, not, there was no reason for this. Maybe it was just, I suppose, his last money. We don't really know why it was there. So what happens then, Sinead? The body is removed from the mountain, presumably brought to a, a hospital in, in Tralee or, or somewhere there for post-mortem? Yeah, so it was brought to the University Hospital in Kerry for the post-mortem and uh, the body was assistant day pathologist Dr. Mara Bolster, a travel to Kerry to carry out this post-mortem and she carried it out on November, November 15, 2020, the day after he'd been found. And what did the inquest hear that she found? 
when she gave her, when she gave her her deposition, she said that the body was in an advanced state of decomposition, which made it very difficult to discover the mode of this. She said that there was obviously in most in most postmortems to be blood and urine samples. This wasn't possible in this case again because of the advanced decomposition of the body. But she did find lig- ligature marks on the body. The postmortem then came back with a verdict of suicide. That was the official and tragic verdict of his death. Now, at this point, we still didn't know that who exactly Mr. Sofield was. So DNA had to be taken to fully identify him. And this is the kind of interesting part. A DNA swab was taken from his toothbrush and razor at his house, at where he'd been living in Atlas House. And this was used for DNA profiling to find out who this man actually was. And they were able to say from that DNA that it matched to his biological daughter. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. So the DNA profiling found that it was a man not of Irish ancestry, so he had no Irish connections whatsoever, and ultimately led to his biological daughter. And that's how they knew exactly who it was, because there was no possible at the time, which would be rather unusual in these cases, there was no one to visibly identify him to say this was Mr. Sofield. There was no relatives in Ireland, no close people that knew him. So nobody could actually identify him. It had to be based on DNA. And it was a swab that was taken from his personal items that helped link to his biological daughter and proved he was from the US and who he was. Sinead Kelleher, thank you very much. And finally, Jerry O'Sullivan, we started talking about the fact that in there was a young child here, his daughter, Caitlin, uh, who went missing with him. We know he has family. Have we ever heard from them about this story or about Thomas Stofield? Uh, no, we haven't. It's obviously, you know, a great sense of tragedy for them in what happened. I mentioned their concern in 2017 was, I'd imagine, about the effect that he was having or maybe his beliefs were having or his behavior was having on his daughter, taking her into the, to the wilderness and the woods near Warm Spring for a number of days, Warm Springs, that, that I suppose the overwhelming sense was the need to protect her from the road that he was leading his own life down and the fact that he was bringing her along for the ride at that time. but. Um, very, um, very sad and, and very, very tragic end. And I suppose a sense of devastation that it did finally end for him. He'd never been to Ireland before. They had no connection with Ireland. The oddness of it all that he would come here, I suppose, and, and that it was here that he ended his days. Jerry O'Sullivan, thank you very much. If you've been affected by the issues raised in today's podcast, the Irish Independent has a list of helplines available. You can find them at independent.ie forward slash irish dash news forward slash helplines. I'm Kevin Doyle and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Garrett Mulhall, research by Dave Hanratty with sound by John Smith. Voiceover recordings were by Terence Smith. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. <laughs>